Hi, and welcome to the Canadian Review, the podcast from the McGill International Review, in which we focus on Canadian politics and social issues. We are honored today to be joined by Professor Cindy Blackstock, member of the Gitson Nation, professor of social work at McGill, and a strong activist for the rights of Indigenous children. Hi, Professor Blackstock. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Charles. So there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot of stuff I'd like to discuss with you. But first, we'd like to hear a bit about you, right? So um, you are a professor at McGill. And I saw and I read that you come from an indigenous nation, the Gitsan Nation in northern BC, right? You often emphasize how you grew up in the bush in northern BC. Yeah. So the big question is, how do you go from all over across the country and become a professor at McGill? Well, it wasn't a planned journey. It was one where almost like, I really think like the ancestors set down a popcorn trail for me to get here. My first job was when I was four years old, I was a pine cone picker. I used to pick pine cones for reforestation in Northern BC. And at that time um, in, this, in the 60s and 70s, residential schools were still active. I, I credit my growing up in the bush as a reason why I didn't end up in one of those, thankfully. But the expectations of First Nations uh, children back then were rock bottom. I mean, you were going to grow up to be on welfare and everything else like that. But from the earliest ages, um, my mom expected me to get an education. And we didn't have a lot of money, but we got a volume of Compton's Encyclopedia whenever we could, the family had enough money. And I would pour through that. And I would say to myself that someday I'm going to see that world. And one of my distance relatives went to university at UBC as engineering. And I thought, I am going to go there one day. And I, I remember asking him how much it cost. And it was $1,000 back then. And I, even in my little five-year-old mind, I've tried to calculate how many pine cones it's going to take me to get there. It was, uh, you know, a lot of pine cones. Um, but eventually I did make it. And what I really saw through my journey, uh, what has really fueled me, is the unequal treatment of First Nations children and how normalized it is in Canadian society. And I just could not square that. How could a country like this give First Nations children and their families less because of their race and then pile on a judgment of them being lazy or incapable without attenuating to the primary issue, which was really Canada's past and ongoing apartheid system of public services. So I just got whatever education experience I needed and followed the trail and here I am. So could you discuss a bit what you're doing? You're executive of the Caring Society, right? Yeah, so um, I run a organization called the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. We call ourselves the Caring Society for short. And we were developed by First Nations communities back in late 1990s uh, to do two things. One is Everyone was experiencing these inequalities in services. And I just want to make the point here that it's really important we use the term First Nations because only First Nations are affected by the Indian Act and only uh, First Nations receive their public services specifically by the federal government directly on reserves and in the Yukon. So we had all been experiencing this, but what would happen is if you were a frontline service agency and you tried to tackle the feds on this and get them to fund equally, often you were retaliated against. Your community members would get a program cut, you wouldn't get a grant, whatever. So the Caring Society was created to tackle those issues, to really become the lightning rod for Canada, but to do more than that, to actually gather together the good solutions that were already on the books, tabled by First Nations experts over the decades, 
as well as being able to share those, those pieces of knowledge between communities. So it was a knowledge sharing porthole, but it was also a place where um, we were going to take on the Canadian government. And I remember an elder saying to us, a great teaching, and I always, uh, I try to live by it. He said, never fall in love with the caring society and never fall in love with your business card. Only fall in love with the kids because there may come a day when you have to sacrifice both those things for them. And we did, that day came for us. I think where you're talking about kind of taking on the government and I'm sure we're gonna get back to it a bit later, but just to provide the audience with kind of some back context, would you kind of explain to us what is your perception of racism in Canada? I know when you've been talking about your kind of your youth in other interviews, you, you often mention how you became aware of racism very young. Yeah, I remember it when I was growing up. I mean, I, when I, my mother is uh, Austrian, my father's first nation. So whenever I was out with my dad, I just get treated differently. Like all of a sudden, all the hopes and dreams that I had no longer were possible, right, by society. It was like, you're gonna grow up and be nothing. You know, people would be discriminatory. They'd use words like Indians. Even on TV, when I turned on the TV, it was a cowboy and Indian shows, right? And everybody wanted to be a cowboy because you live longer. You were always killed off and you were always the group that was put out there as tackling the poor people in the wagon, right? Nothing was taught in school. I remember coming home one day I was so proud of myself because we had to build a Hudson Bay fort, right? And I did so out of popsicle sticks. I did a really good job. I got a good mark on my thing. But of course, they missed the whole story about what happened around those forts, the role the Hudson Bay Company had played uh, in colonialism. That wasn't, all, that wasn't told. We were sold this whole narrative about how good Canada was to First Nations and, and or Indians back then and um, that we should all be grateful for that. And so a lot of, um, I remember, uh, this is the time of the civil rights movement. And I remember uh, turning on TV and seeing people appalled at the treatment of black people in the United States by the Ku Klux Klan and by everyday citizens. And yet these were the same people who would tell me, you're gonna grow up and be nothing but a drunk Indian, right? Like the, the contradiction, the moral contradiction amongst Canadians about what was being perpetrated right here and what they were prepared to stand up for uh, in other countries was just gobsmacking. And I had another example of that when we had apartheid South Africa. A lot of your listeners may not know that Canada actually helped the apartheid system. Uh, in the 40s, uh, people in the apartheid regime came to Canada to study the Indian Act and study uh, the reserve system. And they took that back and ingrained that in apartheid South Africa. So when I went to South Africa and taught in a human rights course, along with a colleague of mine, my Indian status card looked very, very similar to the black identity cards because that was our export. So I seen Canadians rise up against apartheid, but then I would walk by the Department of Indian Affairs and no one would blink an eye. Like it's just stunning. We have a race-based piece of legislation that creates reserves that judges who is or is not First Nations by blood quantum. And yet we're feeling that uh, you woohoo for Canada because we're standing up against apartheid in South Africa, but we're failing to address it right here. 
it feels like it's kind of normalized in Canada and kind of goes under the radar and we compare ourselves with the US and we kind of reassure ourselves by saying, oh, we're not like them, right? Do you think it's perhaps even worse this way? Do you think that the population thinks that Canada is kind of, I've heard you say that this racism is benevolent. Do you think it kind of makes it worse or how do you think it kind of, how, did, how is it concrete? How does it happen in, in everyday life for indigenous people? Well, it just gets normalized, and as you point, as you know, as I've said before, it does be made. It, it is made benevolent. It's like we, the government of Canada, are doing all these good things for First Nations folks. We're investing in First Nations. Oh, sure, some of them may not have clean water after 153 years of Confederation, but we're working on it. And you should be grateful because change doesn't happen overnight. Like we're given this bargain of incremental equality where we are struggling to just get clean water coming out of the tap, something that other Canadians take for granted. And yet we should be thankful when we get a drop of water in the bucket, even though that water may still be contaminated for many First Nations children across the country. It's unthinkable. So it's done that way. And it's also done by the terminology Canada uses. They use things like um, status card to identify the uh, registered Indian card. Well, I'm super elite with Air Canada, right? Because I usually travel so much, it's not so much anymore. Um, and then I have a status card and people think those are the same thing. But a status card is a judgment by the government of Canada about whether it thinks you're a First Nations person or not. Can you imagine if we rolled that out, let's say for uh, Francophone education, that you get francophone education to the degree that you can prove that you're at least 50% blood quantum back to the original Beau de French. How many people would qualify, right? Like unthinkable. And yet these things are applied to First Nations just as a matter of course. And it's enabled by keeping the public in the dark. Uh, that has been one of the key strategies is you can make these stereotypes stick as long as you don't trust the public with the truth. And that's why things like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the Courage of Survivors and everything else was so important because it reaches beyond the government to the public. And then they can make a decision for themselves of whether this squares up with what their conception of good moral conduct uh, by a society or by their government is. And most Canadians say no. And I feel this double standard is present kind of everywhere in the sense that let's say funds will be provided for indigenous people and like one maybe indigenous bureaucrat will not use them properly, then we're gonna say that all, every time funds are given to indigenous people, they're not used well, while there's been some mishandling of funds in Canadian government as well, right? But then it's like the burden of, of innocence and proof is like inverted in those situations. And I feel it's all the time, right? Oh yeah, well, I remember uh, they were passing a First Nations Accountability Act here in, in uh, Ottawa. And at the same time, when I think we went through three mayors in one year for racketeering and fraud and everything else, and there was no talk of a white French uh, racketeer uh, accountability act, right? Even though lots of federal money has been poured into Montreal. Um, and the reason for that is that, um, as you say, one of the markers of, of systemic discrimination is you take the worst qualities and you generalize those across the group. And the best qualities, even if you recognize them in an individual, you say they are an exception to the group. Whereas for others, you say that bad behavior, well, that's just, you know, those are a few bad apples and they need to be addressed uh, by the justice system. Fair enough. 
but it's not generalized in the same way. And the good qualities tend to be painted across most people. It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the Francophone, because I've, uh, I'm reading right now Fighting for a Hand to Hold, the yeah. book by uh, Dr. Shaheen Hussein, which in which you're mentioned a few times. And it's exactly this, because maybe people don't know it's about like accompaniment for uh, medical emergencies from northern communities in Quebec and the fact that usually children are sent without their parents or a caregiver. Um, and there was this kind of press conference where Minister of Health Gaëtan Barrette at the time just said that, oh, it's possible that caregivers can't go on these flights because they're always drunk or whatever. And he just made this huge generalization. So it is really ingrained even in like Quebec as well. And it's kind of sad to think that in a province where our premier doesn't even recognize that systemic racism exists, that it would still happen like this with ministers like that. Yeah, they don't appreciate that by not recognizing it. They're actually emboldening it. It's not a neutral thing to not recognize it. It actually it enables the deepening of the systemic racism for groups. Um, and it lets those who are perpetrating it off the hook, right? And so I think it's very, very damaging when um, leaders do not recognize the challenges that we have as a society. To me, a good leader is not just someone who's there cheering for when we have the good things like opening a stadium or daycare center. To me, a great leader is defined by when they're prepared to embrace those things that hurt and bring us forward as a society to live in a greater community of human rights and expectations uh, with one another across difference. And sadly, I don't think Canada's really had a lot of those people, uh, not in politics. There's been a few, but uh, we think we definitely need more. But I've been encouraged by people like Samir, who have, uh, as, as, as citizens and as professionals, have just said, well, we're not going to wait for the politicians. This is too important. Let's do what we can ourselves. On this subject of systemic racism, you've mentioned often this concept of racial fiscal policy from the government, and I'm not sure I understand it correctly. Could you explain how to kind of flesh it? Right. Place? So uh, the federal government funds public services on reserve and in the Yukon, has done since Confederation, and does so to a far lesser standard than uh, provincial and territorial governments do. That's why we have First Nations without clean water. Uh, with uh, out proper sanitation systems, with underfunded education, underfunded child welfare, etc. Now, the government of Canada has known it underfunds these services for at least 113 years. It's also known that that inequality leads to the premature deaths of children and families, as well as to systemic harms. And yet, and it has had solutions going back 113 years to remedy that inequality. Yet it chooses, and this is an important thing, it's not a failure, it's a choice to not remedy those inequalities. And what COVID has taught me, you know, where government after government said, well, the previous group, we're doing better than the previous group, we can't trade change overnight, blah, 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 all these excuses. But in COVID, they are spraying money everywhere. It is clear that it was always within Canada's fiscal possibility to remedy these inequalities. And they also were able to launch things like serve overnight, right? But um, when it comes to First Nations, all of a sudden it becomes way too complicated. And the other thing about this complicated narrative is I also really question that because they, they were calling getting First Nations equity services complicated. At the same time, they were negotiating a trade agreement with that nutcase Trump in the White House. 
but they never said, oh, this is too complicated for us. We're never going to be able to do the trade agreement, right? These are choices by governments to perpetrate systemic racism and to keep it in place because it allows them to control a people and, and stop them from being able to live the lives they wish they have, which may get in the way of some of the government's agenda and certainly challenges the government's authority. So we're kind of at this part where you will take, you can tell us more about how you took on the government. So you and the Caring Society filed a lawsuit, right? So could you tell us a bit about this and how, what, and like what, how it concluded or it's probably still ongoing, right? Still but maybe what would the process was? Yeah, we partnered with the Assembly of First Nations back in 2007 and filed a human rights case against Canada, alleging that their failure to implement ch uh, equity in child welfare services was leading to unnecessary family separations. We also said that their failure to implement Jordan's principle, which is a principle named in memory of Jordan River Anderson, a little boy who spent his whole life in hospital unnecessarily because the governments wouldn't pay for the services he needed for at-home care just solely because he's First Nations, right? So Jordan's principle says where um, a child needs a public service, that public service should be provided with free of any discrimination by government because of their race. Canada never implemented that. We filed a legal case. And what did Canada do? Well, and this became a pattern. Instead of dealing with the merits of the case, because there was so much evidence to say that they knew this discrimination was going, including reports that they co-authored. Uh, and their own webpage had it up there. Their own webpage said, we are uh, underfunding child welfare and that's leading to growing numbers of kids in care, right on their website. Instead of looking at that, they wanted to distract by going after procedural issues. Oh, it's outside of the Canadian Human Rights Act jurisdiction. That would be unfair to us, the federal government. That's the real issue here. And they brought over eight motions to dismiss. By the time the final arguments were finally heard in 2014, the Canadian government actually broke the law three times. And this is these are findings by courts. So this isn't just a matter of opinion. And they were trying so hard to keep this out of the public eye because discrimination against kids is not something that would be public or would be popular with the Canadian public. So in 2016, the decision gets handed down. It's really an important decision. Because unlike residential schools, it's not like these people were harmed in the past and how do we at some level try to compensate them for their lost childhoods. This was a bigger question. This is racial discrimination is happening right now. How do we put a stop to it? And the tribunal found that the, this discrimination was substantiated and ordered Canada to stop. This was a legal order. Minister Bennett came out and welcomed the decision and then she didn't implement it. So we're now up to nine non-compliance orders against the federal government. The tribunals actually in my, had to invent a whole new set of law called non-compliance orders. Because normally when other institutions, businesses or persons are found to be discriminating before the tribunal, they actually stop the behavior. So there's no need for a non-compliance order. But Canada has been so resistant and keep in mind, all we want them to do is is meet their own legal obligation and end this discrimination against kids that there have they've had to create these non-compliance orders and um, the litigation is still going on and Canada is fighting like even since the pandemic there was a uh, order by the tribunal 
uh, noting that the discrimination was still ongoing, that would be four years plus after their original order, and ordering Canada to compensate children. Well, after the pandemic was declared in March of last year, uh, Canada started fighting that compensation motion in vigor. They said, we don't want to pay any children who happen to die as a result of our discrimination. Like they're literally arguing this in the middle of a pandemic, even though the orders have linked their behavior to the deaths of children. Canada says, we actually should, when that happened, we should actually benefit by not having to pay that estate any compensation. Like it's unfathomable that that's the mindset that they still have. And then to see minister after minister come out and say, you know, we're implementing Jordan's principle while they are legally fighting it in the courts is just unbelievable, right? And that you're not being, uh, you, the caring society, are not uh, giving us credit for all the good work we're doing. Well, the good work that they're doing still falls short of the legal orders that set a minimum standard in Canada. Um, that they are still racially discriminating. And I refuse to thank them for racially discriminating against children. They have to come into full compliance and they need to end the discrimination in other areas like water and that kind of thing too. This paradox, it just feels like it always comes back to what you were saying about normalization. They kind of know that it would not be popular. They know it's wrong, but they just so publicly they'll say that they're upholding it and yet they can't. I don't know. Why do you think they can't? Like what prevents them from complying? I, I think it's a I think it's a colonial psychology where they still want uh, to believe this narrative about them being the good guys. They just cannot embrace the factual reality that they are racially discriminating against kids in ways that contribute to their deaths and to thousands of unnecessary family separations at rates that exceed residential schools. And they're allowed to do it because the Canadian public, although much more aware than it was in the past, isn't constantly knocking at their doorstep saying, this is unacceptable. And I don't care what party you belong to, you will not get my vote if you continue or make excuses for this behavior. That really is the remedy. Um, we all fight them in courts and we've had some success and thanks to the tribunal, we've been able to get over 800,000 services to kids across Canada since the order. But 65% of those are just services every other child would get as a matter of course. And I want you to realize that for Jordan's principle, you have to apply for that service. That means only if you're a community member who knows that you're being discriminated against and applies for relief under Jordan's principle, will be able to access that 65% of services that everyone else just gets as a matter of course, no application necessary. So it's still equality by application and that's wrong. So just a note to our audience, if you wanna hear more about this lawsuit and the fight that Professor Blackstock has been fighting, the cinema monument, Alanis Obamsawin did a documentary about the lawsuit and in Quebec, especially, she's very known for having done so many documentaries, especially on the Oka crisis. So anyways, it's a side note. We can move on because you're talking about legislation passed by the government of Canada. I'd be very curious to talk about the UN drip and the implementation in Canada. So little fun fact, I did my honors thesis in international relations on the UN drip and I got the chance to interview Kenneth Deer while I was doing this. And I know I saw a tweet of yours saying uh, we yeah. should praise the work of Romeo Saganash and Kenneth Deer. 
And I thought it was funny. He was so interesting. And it was about like the making of the UN drip, which lasted decades, right? And it was a fascinating conversation. So your involvement when the UN drip is, among others, is that you cooperated with UNICEF and other people around the world to create a UN drip explainer for teenagers, indigenous teenagers around the world. Could you tell us a bit about that? I, I looked at it and it's a beautiful kind of pamphlet and explainer. Yeah, I find the UN language really hard to interpret. Like it's all because this is written for governments, right? Uh, the General Assembly is controlled by nation states, many of which are, by the way, are colonial. So it's not accessible public language. So I was privileged to work with young people and UNICEF, and we kind of tried to create it in a more kind of user-friendly language. What I found is that that uh, although it's targeted for teenagers, a lot of people really like that version better because it just makes it more understandable. And isn't that the way with kids too? So I think that's really critical. As Canada moves to adopt UNDRIP, I think it's really important that we watch that their actions match the requirements of the declaration. We are entering into a, a phase where the Supreme Court of Canada has held down handed down many decisions in favor of First Nations that Canada has not properly implemented. So even the Supreme Court's authority has been ignored by government after government. So we, again, the public, it's going to be key if UNDRIP is passed, that we, the public, hold the government accountable to those what are minimum standards in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And we do not let them get away with just symbolism. So if they come up for re-election and they say, well, we passed UNDRIP, but they're still arguing against children in, in our case, they're still arguing against survivors of residential schools who were shocked by an electric chair in the St. Anne's residential school case, we say that that's not good enough, right? We have to make sure that they understand that they have to live and breathe that declaration. So to put people in context, the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was passed more than a decade ago, and Canada actually voted against it at the beginning with Australia, the US and New Zealand, which have the highest populations of Indigenous peoples, and all of them endorsed it in the end. And Canada is would be the second country, I believe, after Bolivia to try to ratify it in domestic constitution, which they have just passed now with the, a new bill. So do you think that it's possible that it's going to pass? And do you think it will actually make a difference? No, like I think when Romeo Saganash had it there, I know that the uh, government was trying to blame it all on the conservatives, but I, I think there was an opening for the liberal government had it been inclined to just pass it, get it through, through there, through the Senate. So I, I'm hopeful, but I'm not naive. I've seen it before. And what I've learned over my many years is I don't listen very much to what governments say, but I watch very closely to see what governments do. We can finish kind of with kind of what your hopes are. And I'm going to segue it by saying that the UN drip, um, the ratification of it in domestic uh, constitution is one of the calls for action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The Jordan principle is also one of the calls for action of the, the TRC. There are 94 calls, I believe. Um, so those two things that we mentioned are part of them. And the UN, the UN drip is one of the baselines that is also asked by the Commission on the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and, and Girls. So it feels like it's kind of coming from everywhere, this, these advocacy points. What are your hopes with the Truth and Reconciliation Committees, with these new commissions that are coming, oh, sorry, the commission, and those, how concretely could things improve for Indigenous children, especially? Well, we need to act on the solutions that are already on the books. And one of those big solutions to deal with the inequality is something called the Spirit Bear Plan. 
which is over 153 years, Canada has dealt with the inequalities program by program, drop by drop. It's a uh, spirit bear plan says, let's get the parliamentary budget officer cost out all of these areas of inequality from health to water, to juvenile justice, to play spaces, to just places for youth to hang out. Let's cost out all of that and then create something like the Marshall Plan after the Second World War and be done with it. It was adopted by the Chiefs and Assembly in 2017 and never implemented by the Canadian government. So the Spirit Bear Plan is really important. And um, your listeners can actually go onto our website, fncaringsociety.com and find seven free ways that are COVID safe that they can make a difference to these kids right now. And we have an upcoming thing called Have a Heart Day where we encourage people to uh, send a Valentine to your elected official uh, and to the prime minister and the premier uh, to say that you really want uh, us to live in a society where First Nations children uh, get a fair chance to grow up safely in their families, get a good education, be healthy and proud of who they are. And you can really knock your uh, point out of the park by creating a snow bear like spirit bear. All the directions are on our website. Putting your sign in your snow bear and then sending a photo out to the, to the elected officials so we can all see it and follow you on social media and be inspired by your example. That's awesome. Thanks so much for this inspiring talk, this inspiring conversation. I really hope that the solutions that you, you talk about will be implemented very soon. Well, you know, they can be implemented, but it depends on the choices each of us makes. Are we going to just hope or are we going to do? And I know that each one of us can do something. And that's why I'm uh, going to look to see what happens as a result of folks logging on to fncaringsociety.com. They need to get busy because they're the kids' best hope. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. This was the Canadian Review with Professor Cindy Blackstock. Thank you so much for listening and follow the McGill International Review on Facebook or Instagram for more quality content.